1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSC. Maryland
2: sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years' experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Longshots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I 270 and MD85 in Frederick, right next to Longshots off track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com. For more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise Must be 21 or older Play responsibly for help Call 1-800-GAMBLER With one of the best savings rates in America Banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band Next up for lead guitar You're in (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.
0: Are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for Election Day.
3: Headcount tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote. But you don't need to leave your house to register or to get voting info. Register to vote by visiting headcount.org.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mixtape, Mixtape Memories. Memories. I'm Jenner's.
3: And I'm Matt Hart Spade.
0: And we're here with Saida Blount today, Hi our there. special guest. Yay! Woo! <laughs> She's the senior manager of global content marketing at Sonos. Sounds so official. And- it's too much. <laughs> <laughs> and formerly, NPR Music's live events and digital content manager. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for being here. This is the best. I'm really, really excited. Thanks for having me. It's so interesting, like, to have like seen what you've been doing and your various roles over the years, and um, it's like nice to see somebody with like such a point of view, you know? Oh, nice. Thank you. That's that's really awesome to hear. I mean, I kind of feel
1: like the exact opposite. I feel like, or maybe it's all those people that work behind the scenes, and you're kind of like. Sl- you feel like you're slogging it to the finish line all the time <laughs> like um, I you know when I work on music projects I am behind the scenes but half of the time I'm just like in in various like versions of myself I was like just get them on the stage get them on the stage that's all you want to <laughs> do like you just want it you're looking towards the end but you're like just get on stage so I, ampre- I appreciate the time behind the curtain it's been yeah cool.
3: That's <laughs> fair. When did your love of music kind of get started? Like, what's your earliest music memory? And do you have particular mixtape memories from way back?
1: Yeah, you know, the absolute earliest is dancing around the living room with my mom. Um, my, you know, I, I don't know if it's just the patriarchy maybe put that idea in our head, but I always assume that I got my music taste from my dad. Like, my dad was a big record collector. He loved music. But, in a weird sort of way, I didn't know that my mom loved music as much as my dad did, and so come to find out i mean those those memories are pretty dead on like my I just remember like my mom like holding both of my hands and like dancing me around the living room to different songs and I always remember like my mom loved Abba and my mom like <laughs> loved wings, and there were just certain artists that she loved and she would put on and just would just dance around and I I remember that and then on the other end as I got a little bit older um, my dad would go record shopping Um, I grew up in Kansas City and you know they at one time had like dozens upon dozens of record stores and like they had a record store district and it was a big like record fanatic kind of a great place to grow up if you love vinyl and so my dad always had like final days like hunting days and I remember him bringing over like a crate and like sliding it next to where he was digging to let me like peek up and see what he was doing so I mean it was just all around me from a very early age
0: what is it with Kansas City and like people with good taste in music (laughs) because I feel like I know so many you know honestly people
1: don't believe me um, that you know we had um, very early on, and you know, they touched upon this in the I don't know if you guys watched the country music documentary, Ken Burns' um, documentary, that Kansas no. City ended up being a prime radio market really early because there was all that land to put the towers there. And so they're these huge mega, megawatt towers. And so disc jockeys just popped up. Like radio culture in Kansas City was very real, even growing up. I felt like the stations were better in Kansas City than they are here in New York City. I moved here and I was like, what is this? There's like one classic rock station, one of this. Like um, where I grew up, it was like multiple of everything. We would get stuff also from Lawrence, which was 45 minutes outside of Kansas City. One of the like 70,000 college students and a couple of the best record, um, excuse me, college radio stations in the country people love radio in the Midwest. Like it's, and you still drive time is real. So we were born listening to music all the time.
0: That's true. You're driving culture. You're always Mm -hmm. like listening to radio, listening to something. Now it's like maybe a podcast, but (laughs) I
1: mean, it's that's real.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What kind of stations would you listen to? Or would be kind of a mix of all sorts of things?
1: It was everything, you know, my parents, um, we didn't have, like, a cassette deck in the car for a long time. Mm-hmm. It was just the radio, I remember. And so it was all across the board. Like, my parents would flip, and it would go from classic rock to an R&B station to um, – classical to pb or excuse me npr like i was an npr kid i grew up like being in the back seat and like strapped in and my parents listen of course you're a kid you're like oh who's this is just talking but you <laughs> wanted to hear the music but um i also remember just driving around my i'm the youngest of all of my cousins and i remember driving around with my cousins and it was just listening to music like that was what kids did you cruised And you Mm -hmm. listen to music and like, you know, they were probably babysitting and cruising at the same time, (laughs) what they're not (laughs) supposed to do. And you're just listening to music. So I remember just hearing across all genres all the time.
0: That's That's nice. Um, Because you study, you actually like studied political science, right? Yeah. And then uh, I was reading that you were working with your college radio station and... Is that kind of how you started to feel like you could work in the industry? It was. You know, um,
1: the one thing is my parents were very strict. Like they were all about academics all the time. Like there wasn't. Um, You know, it was nice to do on your own. But when it came to college and I was like, there was a moment where I was like, I feel like I might want to be an art major or a, a music major. And my parents were like, shut it down. It's not happening. <laughs> They're yeah. like, you're going to have a job where you're like, you're going to get a, a degree where you can get a job afterwards. And I was like, fair play. And so like, that was kind of, again, a moment where I was like, this is my thing to do outside of academics, working on college radio, but I think it really did give me a teaser moment of like, ooh, this could be really awesome to work in um one year the uh the station sent us to c m j um the college music journal festival, and that was my also my first time coming to New york. It was am- it blew my mind just I'd never seen anything like that like the largest shows I'd ever been to, just tons of music fans around and Again, I think it planted that kernel that I was like, ooh, this might be competing against what I always thought I was going to do.
3: Now, I was just going to say, I just want to say out loud that you have such a great radio voice and radio personality. Like, your vibe is perfect for radio, I think.
1: It's, you know, NPR is a great learning ground for that. Like, <laughs> you definitely get taught a radio voice. Like, you know, they're very cool about, um, they don't want people to lose their personality. Like, they don't want... Like if somebody does have a total like an inflection or something that's very true to them, they're not going to beat that out of you. But there's definitely things like they tell you where to pause and like obviously like with your punctuation, you can see where it needs to go. But it was a great training ground. And, you know, some of the people I worked with in NPR music were the best in the business. Bob Boylan, Robin Hilton, Stephen Thompson, some really great voices that when you turn it on, you recognize them.
0: How did you like first get your start working in it? You know, I, while I was in, I came to New York for
1: grad school and you know, the grad school I picked was great, but I didn't feel like I was challenged. My undergrad, I thought the the work I did in undergrad, I thought was much more challenging, so I was doing well with my graduate studies, but I wasn't really kind of just like, ooh, this is tougher than anything I've done. I did almost, I did fellowship level work while I was in undergrad. I won a political science fellowship, and they like when I got there, like they they identify you pretty quickly, and like the people they want to put on a fast track. So I was doing pretty high level work from my probably end of sophomore year and like on in preparation for this fellowship and like my college at the time had never had somebody not win it like I think I was the last (laughs) person uh, to win it so (laughs) um and so I got to New York City I'm in grad school I'm studying public policy and to be honest I was kind of like I was a little bored and I was like I'm in New York City where you can go out seven nights a week and There's also shows every night of the people that never came to the Midwest that I would love to see, including some of the people that we're going to talk about today. It's just like, I felt like a kid in a candy store. And then I ended up getting a internship at this kind of remember web 2.0 like when the web kind of discovered that you could do cultural stuff other than like looking up things and using jeeves mm-hmm. um, and so, oh my
3: god jeeves,
1: jeeves oh i miss jeeves god. every day like, <laughs> um so i worked with this web 2.0 company called platform.net that did a lot of cultural things and you know they worked and brought like vice to america um, we worked with like triple five soul and trace and and um, I ended up just loving it. And I had an editor there that was like, I feel like you could do this. And this could be your life. If you want to be a music journalist, you could do this. And something in me clicked in the way that he just believed in me and kind of pushed me along. I, I was kind of like, he's right. I, I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that was it. Like, You know, when you're an intern in the music industry, you're an intern for a long while. Typically, it's not like you usually jump right into your job. It's very rare. And especially back in the 90s, um, it really (laughs) didn't happen that way. Late 90s, I would say. Yeah, I was intern for a long time. And then I became a news editor there. And I was just writing every day. Like He would just have me writing pieces about music news and review this album and talk to this person. And it was the best training ground I could have had.
0: That's
3: awesome. That's amazing. That
0: sounds
1: like a dream. <laughs> it was great. And I met some of the best people that I'm still friends with in New York City. I mean, 22 years later, folks that are just amazing that have gone on and started companies or have created like books and images and things that you see. And it, it, it was just such a good training ground to know about like what makes the music industry run, what makes the cultural like industry, because that's a whole nother thing. Like, before it wasn't as big, but now with, like, that was the very impetus. And now it's just culture's involved in everything. There are more music journalists that have stopped writing music that Mm -hmm. are going into culture. They're just Mm -hmm. like, it's easier to be a culture writer these days. I cherish every moment of that. It was crazy. We worked in this big old loft on the edge of the water in Williamsburg when it was not Williamsburg <laughs> when it was still just a, like a trucker, truck stop, like truck stock hookers, police oh, yeah. like beeping you and being like, what are you doing in this area of town? And um, it was just, it was wild um, to be in a, in a loft every day with probably like 16 other people just making great music content every day.
3: That's amazing. What were some of the venues you went to when you first Got to New York and started to explore. Do you remember? And are any of them still around? Probably not. Well, maybe Irving Plaza, a couple mm-hmm. others.
1: <laughs> yeah: Yeah. Irving Plaza, Webster Hall, the knitting factory is moved, but I of used course. to go to the old knitting factory all the time. That was the place. Remember, they brought a lot of the hip-hop artists that ended yeah. up becoming like huge. Like I mm-hmm. saw the very first clip show there. Oh, um, wow. I saw Digable Planets there. I mean, just nice. crazy folks at um, Knitting Factory where you're just kind of like begging your friends to come with you. I remember going to see clips and I was just like, yo, it's this group that Pharrell is producing and they're supposed to be really great. And you've heard that song, Grinding, and a few people had heard it and they're like, eh, I'm not going to go all the way to like the Knitting Factory downtown <laughs> to like hear that. And like, I remember being in that room, probably one of a hundred people, Maybe. Yeah. For their very first show. I'm just like, there we go. I'm trying to think. You know a place I just remembered recently? Centrofly. Remember Centrofly, the, the nightclub? Yeah. Very uh, vaguely. That yes. had the <laughs> the sunken DJ booth in the middle of the floor. And you, like, danced around that. It was either a DJ booth or a bar. Centrofly, and it was so, like, they had, like, some crazy sound system. So every time you left, your ears were ringing
0: I feel like I turned away from Central.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was like you had to after a while, but I saw some amazing shows there. Like I saw like Ronnie Size and Goldie and some just amazing like drum and bass. Like they did a lot of drum and bass stuff. A lot of British stuff came through there. I'm trying to think of what that hip hop club in the 20s was. I saw Wu-Tang there which was one of the wildest shows I've ever seen where it's literally like 55 people on stage and they gave everyone a mic which I was like, who made this executive decision and made that person be fired <laughs> <laughs> everyone does not need a mic on this stage <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh, New York, yeah it, it, it bums me out that so many of those venues are gone and that we're seeing this happen again, that venues are disappearing mm-hmm. right now through this isolation and pandemic moment
0: it's so sad it's yeah. like this whole pandemic situation has put so much clarity and so many faults you know with our society that like and that just adds to it because nobody like appreciates culture and art i know as much as they should in a valuable sort of way like you're always like barely scraping by and that's yep. why bands break up because they can't really earn enough to like actually make a living and then you know, when it's gone, you know, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to be streaming? (laughs) You know, like, yeah, you know, hopefully they get some kind of federal aid or something, because I mean, we're not going to be out of this situation anytime soon.
1: Yeah, something has to happen, because I I think you're 100% right that you lose a little bit of creativity each generation, something like that happens. like we might have missed and don't laugh at me. We might have missed our Beatles or like we might have missed some band <laughs> that's just like cranking out something we would have never heard because they just didn't have the opportunity or they couldn't break even or they couldn't find a venue it's a little It's a little sad,
0: yeah, yeah. You moved to New York in the late nineties for graduate school, then as a music journalist for a little bit. And then where did you go?
1: After that, like, you know, I did the picking up stray jobs for like a while and whatnot. Then I ended up working for a guy named um Jonathan Moore, who ended up founding a club called APT. Um, which was a pretty um groundbreaking venue that was in the meatpacking club that, you know, it was a private like spot behind the door you had to like when it first opened in its uh, first iteration you had to like be invited or be on a list or make a reservation to get in. I feel like
0: I remember that.
1: (laughs) Yeah and then as it you know of course you know there's always that buzz spot place and all the celebrities go and you know that never really waned that much at APT. It always ended up remaining that somebody crazy would come through those doors every night but in its second wave it became about really respecting dj and music culture and we had a guy named alec de ruggiero who was an amazing music booker and curator and like now he is a music super like a really well known music supervisor he works with everybody um and alec just booked amazing amazing stuff um so i was with them for four years handling their marketing and um working with like some of the most creative people ever, um, to kind of get the imagery together and we did like personalized like twelve twelve inch calendars that we sent out all around the world. Nice. And that was amazing. I that was a, a pure training ground right there where you just heard the best some of the best DJs in the world and producers and just music lovers spinning music seven nights a week. And I mean mm-hmm. I was there probably five or six nights a week I usually take one day (laughs) as a break sometimes (laughs) but just consistently having some of the best people in the world playing music just in there spinning it I mean I saw everyone from I mean that was one of James Murphy's first outside residencies um outside of his own venue um we had Stretch and Bobbito uh gosh everybody um literally everybody came through there it it just got Mm -hmm. to be too much almost and um it was just and then working with people that just loved music and you would have people that would support you every night because they knew what they didn't care what it was they would walk in there and they knew they would hear something awesome or they'd be challenged or they'd learn about some music that was new but Um, It was just a really special time, and again, another place where I met friends that I I still talk to to this day, and people that I respect their music taste. I mean, DJ Dwayne, Dwayne Harriet, one of the best, like, selectors in the game, like, was a DJ and also consulted and did things there. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I literally could go through a list of so many people, but that was really awesome. Then after that, went to The Fader. Was there for a couple of years, worked on live events for them, and then was freelance for a good long time, taking on clients.
0: Did you like freelance
1: life? It's tough. You, you have to be really driven and you have to look for your own work. It, the thing that really <laughs> kicked me in the pants was there was a point where my mom was like, aren't you tired of not having insurance? Or like, aren't you tired <laughs> of paying an outrageous amount of money? Per month like not mm-hmm. to have insurance I was like that is kind of true but it was awesome I worked with amazing clients that just were at that time remember it, it was considered being a sellout if a band put their music in a video or a commercial for a yeah. brand like okay. it was a big deal yeah. and so I worked with agencies and with partners To find those new lines and broker those deals and create those partnerships in a really holistic way that it didn't feel like these people were kind of, at the time, selling out. It's like, Mm -hmm. here's the partnership, and this is how it's going to enhance what you're doing. And these people kind of have the same values. And again, there were some people that did just want the check. They're like, I don't care. Cut the check. It's a liquor company. I know it's going to be a big one. Great. Great. But it was a really different time. Not like now that it's like, that's what people expect. They make albums with 26 tracks because they're expecting (laughs) that they'll release five of them as singles and then 10 of them they'll try and license for movies Mm -hmm. or commercials or whatnot. It was a very different time that it was like getting those big hits from big bands. You had to like, talk to them for weeks and weeks and weeks and convince them that it wouldn't ruin their image. It wouldn't ruin things for other people on the label, that it was worthwhile to give them the umpteenth amount of money that they were going to get for it. Pretty crazy days, but it was fun. A lot of laying down this foundation of what's going on now.
3: And then you kind of transitioned into NPR at some point?
1: That's it. Um, How did that
3: opportunity come about?
1: It's wild like I was really still freelancing and I got an email you know every once in a while I would get a note from somebody um asking me to do some some journalistic um like like an article or a view or something like that and I would pick those up and it was fun also just keep my chops of writing and listening and kind of keeping a critique style there was a guy I worked with who is still at NPR Music. His name's Otis Hart, and Mm -hmm. he hit me up and was like, hey, what are you up to these days? I was like, oh, I'm still doing my freelancing partner thing. And he was just like, "Hey, would you consider applying for this job at NPR? And I got it. And I was like, there's no way that they would hire me for something like that. And then kind of like sat on it for a month, and he hit me back. He was like, did you apply to that thing? And I was like, no. I was like, there's no way. And he was like, no, they want somebody that's gonna shake things up and do it differently they definitely want somebody that knows events knows music um you have some journalistic uh, background that's great but they want somebody to come in here and do something absolutely different for their live events they're open went through the process loved everybody there like that was my first you know now like you go into job interviews and you talk to like 10 people that was like my first like talk to 10 people like i literally talked i think to probably like five people in new york then they put me on the train to go to DC headquarters, and there I—I I don't even know how many people I talked to. Like they, <laughs> by the end of, when I got back on the train at the end of the day, I was like just spinning and like shaking because I was like, I think I talked <laughs> to thirteen people today in like an interview, <laughs> and ended up getting the job. And it was—I was there so for cool. five years and just one of the best squads in the business. Pe- yeah. Just professional, amazing, curious, smart gregarious people I worked with every day Um, there were challenges but nothing was personal there it's because you knew people loved music Mm -hmm. and people were willing to fight for what they believed in and what they wanted to listen to and what they wanted to present to the listeners and the rest of the world and how can you be mad at that like people were just willing to like lay a line in the sand and argue they're like no we're gonna put this on the air we're going to like we're gonna figure it out here's how it's gonna happen best thing ever
0: it's really awesome when you can like connect with people on a musical level because i feel like you're right like it forms like a deep bond you know if you have like this shared experience and like love for certain kinds of music you just like can't help it it's like a bond that like will last for a really long time no matter
1: yeah. what, you know? I mean, again, it's like, I feel like I've been very lucky that I've had, um, I and, you know, I actually talked about this with uh, my work colleagues at Sonos, that it's, you know, I, I, I tend to choose where I work on feeling, if I'm going to have a feeling of, that it's to my beliefs, my value systems, the people I would want to be around. I know a lot of people don't get that choice, but I personally made that effort. I think when I stopped doing politics and decided to remove myself from that kind of like, where you could be nameless, faceless, you're kind of doing whatever, that I wanted it to be very encompassing of like what I believe in. And, you know, with NPR, um, literally some of those people are, the best people I've ever met in my life. I mean, I just had to move out of my apartment for three weeks because of some construction. One of my old NPR colleagues was like, you can stay in my apartment. Like he like literally like went to DC and like stay, it was like, you can stay here. And like, I mean, who does that for people? But that's like, because I was on the road with this person traveling to festivals and recording (laughs) things and living a shared experience with them for five years. Like you start to know people and, you, you, and when you just have that common bond of respect and joy, and it, it makes it very easy to go to work and love it every day.
0: Definitely. Very true.
3: You know, earlier today, I was going through some of your archives, NPR archives, Uh and I stumbled upon a clip from the first time churches were in the States and they played South By and your name is on the production of of that video, uh, that live video. And I just remember like at the time I was thinking, okay, that band is about to break really big. Mm -hmm. You could just tell like there was just the pop element and it was catchy. And um, I don't know. It was a nice memory because I feel like I was I was literally at the same show that that was uh, being featured.
1: It's amazing. That South by Southwest was great. That might've been like either my first or my second. Um, I remember that show because I think they only had that one single out. And then you Mm -hmm. heard that they're like this Scottish band and they played like at a weird time. Like it was really kind of early, but you know, we set up there all day. I think we recorded like most of the acts that performed on that stage. And as soon as they hit, you knew you were seeing something special. Like, Her voice sounded just Mm -hmm. like the record, which for me is a huge thing. I always comment on that to people. I'm like, oh, their voice. Like, if I'm in a live show, I'm like, oh, they sound just like the record. She sounded just like the record. They sounded amazing. The energy was high. Everybody that was there was kind of just really into it. And they also, you could tell, won over fans there. It was really great to have that opportunity and be, that was the first time I had been on like kind of digital and video production end of those things Mm -hmm. that team at NPR is unbelievable like I think that translating it from the traditional terrestrial radio and then also giving it life online masters and um they figured out a way to make both feel very intimate and that's what I love about the concert videos that even have continued on and also with like the tiny desks and some of the other like programs that they have um on music It it feels intimate and it makes you feel like, hey, we're giving you this opportunity as a music fan to really see this and really see this performance and really experience it. That's at least what I wanted because I know that, you know, growing up in the Midwest, it bummed me out that I would open up a magazine and see like tour dates for a band that I love and they didn't even come anywhere near me in Missouri. Like they weren't coming to Kansas City. Maybe they'd go to St. Louis. They'd definitely go to Chicago, probably. Maybe they'd go to Dallas. My parents aren't letting me drive eight hours anywhere. So no. I never got to see a lot of the bands I wanted. So for me, getting that stuff out to somebody who had a chance to look at it on a laptop or they beamed it to their TV, that might be their opportunity to see a band that they love or discover something. So I always felt really proud of those videos that came out.
0: What are some of your like um, memories of the odds? in the New York scene then because I feel like it was such a moment in time
1: yeah it was wild (laughs) Um, (laughs) it it went from so many different scenes clashing literally at once I mean there was electro clash and then there were the beginning of like that pitchfork indie like and um, there was also like the nascent kind of like skater parties like that always like mixed punk and hip-hop and it was just so much of a a blender of of culture like that's one of the things I do miss the most about um a lot of cultural settings in New York City that it was very much like the 70s and when you hear people talk about the 70s I never thought I'd be one of those people's like I miss this and why can't we do this <laughs> but I'm gonna go there now but um mm-hmm. I miss that moment of where people from all different types of scenes could get together listen to everything kind of mishmash together and you hung out you knew people like I knew skaters I knew like ravers I knew like techno kids um i I knew rockers and i knew music journalists and i knew artists we would all be at the same party the dj would just play across all genres that was one of those things i loved and the parties could be anywhere like you could see a live band play at a vacant literally at a vacant chinese restaurant down in wall street or you could go (laughs) uptown to the 50s and like go into a midtown office building that they had cleared, obviously cleared the desk out of and you're you're there. That was like really the, the very brave. I mean, I had already been working in Williamsburg, but for pe- a lot of people that was their first time ever going to Williamsburg to go see shows or going to Bushwick. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Bushwick, my friend was like, all right, you're going to take the train here and as soon as you get out, run to my apartment. I was like, run? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and she was not joking. I literally got to the top of the stairs And it was like every stereotypical New York movie that there were, like, men warming themselves over a barrel. There was, like, a shotgun car that had been burned out. And, like, I hit the top of the stairs. I was like, oh, she wasn't joking. Literally trucked (laughs) to her apartment. That was the first time that, like, folks were braving it out there to, like, see bands. Um, And there was just an energy of young creative people that everybody had, like one or two jobs or there were a few people that were lucky that maybe had a desk job or like they were a writer they worked at an agency but everybody was scrappy but they also did their other thing it's like you know everybody i know that was like in a band was a bartender somewhere they all were bartenders like (laughs) or they all were bouncers somewhere or they they did something else but that's how they lived their dream that they were able Mm -hmm. to do that um and it was just—it felt exciting. It felt like something was really happening. Like you kept hearing, like and seeing Brooklyn written up in things, and you kept seeing about like here are these bands that are now out there touring and like going to festivals, and they're like people in London are hearing about, it, and you're just like, whoa, these are like friends of mine. This is the guy who made me my drink last night. That like his <laughs> bands like blowing up. Um, I just remember that vibrant sort of that. That energy and it would just run through you that you just never knew what could happen any night that you went out. That could be the night that that person gets written up and they just mm-hmm. become a star and that's it.
0: And people were hungry to like for new music, you know, like to 100%. discover, you know, and like you would, yeah, you're right. You'd, you would go anywhere, <laughs> like, and, yeah. and um, you'd be like in a loft, you know, wherever. I don't know, like it just I, didn't matter. Yeah.
1: And I think I still listen that way that um, I listen with that kind of hungry spirit that it's like, I want to know what you played, what, and like some of those bands you could like, they would then play like a DJ set afterwards and they play like the references that you'd hear in their music. Like people just weren't afraid of like going out, learning about new music. You didn't have to know everything about it where you like, go to pitchfork first and then you go to cos and read about it and then oh, i'm gonna look and see what my friend said on twitter it's like no you just kind of like i'm like oh, i kind of like that single all right I'll, it's like the show's like three dollars let me just bounce out and see what it's like you did it and i mean there was you know everything was fueled by like it was cheap drinks back then before mm-hmm. bottle service culture really hit and um, it was easy to go out, and you know the train wasn't the train was fine. Like you got around, like cabs weren't super expensive, especially if it's like you and like four of your friends pile in. I mean, I had a car. So I literally became a taxi for like. Oh wow! <laughs> my yeah, I had Midwestern parents who're like, "You're not moving to New York without a car." They're like, "You're going to have a car." And so um, nice. I literally—I mean, there were nights where I'd have seven friends piled in my car. We're just driving around <laughs> to venues, whatever. If you could just get there, it's good odds you're going to get in. Like, I think they wanted mm-hmm. people to come and show up and have a good time. And it just was wild. Everybody had a spirit where it was friendly and it was cool you probably are just gonna get drunk and wasted and then you like still went to work the next day. It's mm, like somehow. it sucks. Like you went to bed at <laughs> like you went to bed at three and you still got up at like eight thirty to make it there by nine somehow. <laughs> somehow. But you did
3: it. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean that was my life for many years, from like, I don't even know, oh three to oh nine or something, you know?
1: Yeah. It's, it's amazing blur. when I think about it. I was like, how did I go out seven nights a week or six nights a week. Like if I go out once, I'm
0: kind of like, Ooh, I need the rest of the week to recover. <laughs> <laughs> Same.
3: But I remember like plotting out the calendar and it was like, okay, on Monday I'm at Bowery for this show. And on Tuesday night, the early show at Mercury and then the late show is at Glasslands. And like if, looking back at some of the schedules I kept, it was like, I would see 30, 40, 50 shows a month. And not, it wasn't every single night, but it was a good 22, 23 nights out of yeah. the month, you know?
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, I I still, like, now, like, I, even I, I keep up my live show. I was actually talking about this with a work colleague that um, I still, before, I mean, obviously the pandemic, I was still seeing probably two to three shows a week solidly. And, you you. know, (laughs) at one point, I know, it it took a lot, but it's still, like, it's always good to just kind of go out and see if you can. And um, it was so funny. Like, you know, at the... The top of this year, I was like hanging out with this guy, and he was like, "Oh, I've only been to three live shows ever," and it literally floored me. I was like, "Ever?" I was like, "And granted, they were all good, but I just had never thought about that." I asked a friend, I was like, "Is this a red flag?" And she's like, "Stop being a music (laughs) snob." She was like, "That everybody (laughs) goes to shows like that," but I was like, "I literally just it didn't even comprehend." But that's how we did it. It's like you always just went and checked out a show it was that easy
3: yeah that's something that you both have talked about like kind of the the discovery is just very different now and i also feel like the passion that the three of us have and so many others it's a different kind of thing now you know Mm -hmm. and uh, i can't really define it
0: yeah like i don't understand how you could go to a concert and then not become like addicted to like going to see live shows you know it's such a different experience than just like listening to it you know it's so visceral know. you know so it's just like uh maybe that would be a red flag <laughs> see you're just like me I was like
1: I was like Pissy's rather odd it literally when he told me that it affected me for like the rest of the night where I just kept it in the back of my head then called my friend the next day and she was like let that go she's like let it go it's not a big deal I was like I was like but three ever I because mean, he was like how many have you ever seen? I was like, I probably seen three this week already. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> but, you know, the great thing was he was down, like, I took him to, like, some shows with me and he really enjoyed that. And so I feel like I've opened I opened a new gates. But, yeah, maybe we had just much more of an adventurous spirit and that's what we had to do. I mean, again, Pitchfork wasn't on, and, or Pitchfork was there, but, I mean, I think it was so indie heavy, but I think... I could agree that we all probably went to a lot of like multi genre shows and across the board. So, who knows?
0: Well, now you're at Sonos. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I know you guys just launched uh, Sonos Radio, and I know that was a big project uh, that you were involved in. And it was really impressive when I saw like, you had, like, David Byrne curate some stuff and Tom York and Brittany Howard. Like, what was that like? <laughs> you know
1: what? I, there's no way I can um, take even, like, uh, like. there's a huge team around this. Like, I can't take any all or in all of that credit. There's an extraordinary team. And people just worked really, really hard. And, like, the one great thing is that, you know, Sonos is a company full of music lovers, like I'm not even joking. It's like there is a portion of your interview where like you talk about like what you're listening to and Mm -hmm. why it's important and like your first day of work, like you make a mixtape for like your department and like it's bananas. Um, (laughs) and I've been lucky that I've always been in the, like the creative end of the company, not so much the tech or the product or the product end, like the physical product, So I've always been working on, like, how do we create that, like, experience outside the home, and, you know, the folks we work with, like, encompass so many teams, and then there, I got this, like, kind of weird email, like, I would say, I guess I was three years in, being like, hey, would you be interested in, like, coming with this crew, and we're gonna go um santa or santa barbara is where sonos is based we're gonna go to santa barbara and like kind of meet all at one and talk about a potential project and it ended up being sonos radio it was absolutely like stealthy and secret we're in a house and we came up with probably half of the stations that are on there that week um that we just sat down and brainstormed did power like kind of like okay what would be on the station and like what would be hits, would be the medium things, would be the back of the wall. And it just grew from there that we just started thinking about, like, what would we curate and what would um, what would this sound like? And I felt really lucky that they were like, hey, would you want to curate and manage um, Sonos's own station sound system? And I was like, of course. And it was hard because it's like, you know, I love doing like the live events for the company and, I got to travel the world, and the team I was on was unbelievable, but um, that was, that's basically, I feel like, what I was born and bred to do, of everything that I do, I love making playlists, and I mean, obviously, Music Junkie, and then just starting to dive into just that, of like, who would be those dream people that you want, the, um, our global head of music, Brian Beck, and uh, the guy named Joe Dawson, and um, our content lead, um, Dimitri, like, everybody just threw in so much of like here are the people we'd want to work with can we make this happen and like i would say like 85 percent of them were like yeah this is totally can like we wow. can so i mean tom york totally was down to do it it's like that we gave him complete creative freedom freedom was like there it is david Byrne, Brittany howard same thing i mean I, I i'm in the process right now of working on a season two and we're kind awesome. of going through that whole magic now and i Let me tell you, some of the people that I've been on calls with were like, wow, I would have never thought anybody would have asked me to do this. And I'm like, do you know who you are? And, like, do you know that, (laughs) like, we would totally die to work with you? Like, there's one artist that I literally was like, the inner, like, my inner 13-year-old had to push it down. I was just like, do not act up on this phone call i was like i was like be good be cool like just like get it like make them think that you're not a crazy like stalker fan and you just have to (laughs) make this happen i was like but it it's just joyful and you know to find out that your favorite music artists love music as much um that they've had so much fun putting these playlists together we keep hearing back that they're like i didn't know how much fun that was gonna be to go through like my music and put it together they're like i haven't done that in a long time some of these people have not done that in years all they Mm -hmm. do is just crank out music they don't get to go back and like reference like you know i love this song or hey this new artist is really interesting to me like let's put this in the mix to give people that platform and then also share it with our owners and listeners that are out there i think it's the best of both worlds
0: Should we have uh, hop- repeat? Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so,
3: Stoked. Yeah, I'm really excited for these two releases. Um, the first one we're going to talk about is uh, Bjork's sophomore album, Post. Saida, you want to start us off with any memories? You know, debut was huge for me. Of course.
1: Definitely still in college or easing towards college. And she just seemed like, I was just like, wow, this lady's just going for it. And so, debut was just completely unlike anything I'd ever heard in my life. Post, for me, is a very emotional album because it was, I was in a relationship in college that I felt like some of the things she was talking about were dead on. And also, it just seems like such a brave, ferocious album. Yeah, it's a pretty special one for me.
0: I didn't really uh, go see her live when these albums came came out um but you know i'm the same like debut was like huge for me and like cuz i only really experienced her as like you know sugar cubes so it's like it was just like a different vibe and um so i just fell in love with her and with debut and then when this came out there were so many good tracks too though like it was also very good and listening back to it i just like made me fall in love with it all over again like because i just haven't listened to this album in a while and i did go to see her at united palace Ooh. she was i think she was promoting volta back then but she played a lot of tracks from post and mm-hmm. i re- remember pretty vividly when she played army of me and everyone just like freaked out but i guess like I the year before i guess it was the year before was it 2006 the sugar cubes reunited and i went to see them in Reykjavik. Oh. so like those were the two times that i've seen bjork in my life wow. um, and uh, i was lucky because i was dating this guy who worked at filter magazine at the time and they sent us to cover it oh, lucky <laughs> yeah so i was very lucky my first like like international trip but and um also seeing sugar games at the same time <laughs> Amazing. yeah that was uh my bjork memory but mm. i don't know listening back i really liked hyper ballad that seemed to really stand out to me I was reading about this song and that it's like a song for like uh it's like a romance song so it's like you go out and you'd be terrible to other people so that you can come back and like be nice to the one you love which I think is so weird at least for me like I was like okay <laughs> it's
1: very Bjork it seems pretty in line of just yeah. like yes
0: I just love the way she thinks. She's so weird. I love it. (laughs) Matt, did you have memories?
3: Yeah. I mean, for me, I think this album is kind of timeless and I feel like it's kind of romantic and kind of whimsical. It's not my favorite Bjork album. My favorite Bjork album is the one that follows this, actually, which I never knew if it's pronounced homogenic or homogenic. I don't know, but um, I don't say it out loud too much. But that's my that's my favorite (laughs) Bjork record. But um yeah, I mean, I've seen Bjork a few times through the years. Uh, the first time I saw her was in Coney Island in 2003, and Sigarose opened. It was oh. amazing, um, wow. and weirdly, Sigarosa, the the time slot they were given, it was still daylight out, which was very bizarre. Wow. Um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> Bjork was, of course, amazing, and that night she actually did a bunch of songs from Homogenic. Uh, but the encore was isabel which tears at me i love that song so much um and also um i know the last song of the night was human behavior but oh yeah she also performed you've been flirting again but the icelandic version which Uh, i thought was kind of special wow yeah it was amazing but yeah over the years i've seen her at uh, united palace i think i was at the same show as Jin. i've seen her at msg which was a uh, it was weird to see bjork in like a huge stadium Mm. um and then when she toured the um, the Cure album, I saw her at Carnegie Hall and at King's Theater. Wow. And both of those shows were, uh, wow. I really can't put into words. I mean, that was the album where she was going through, the, of course, the big breakup with Matthew Barney. And mm-hmm. it was so raw and like so emotional. And like you couldn't help but just kind of, your jaw was on the ground the whole time, you know?
1: I got to see her on this tour, on the post-tour. Uh-huh. Actually, and, I'm um, very jealous. <laughs> it was oh, wow. nuts, and get ready, guess who her who her opener was? Apex Twin. Even...
0: Oh. oh my god, <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> Which was nuts. Like he did wow. a DJ set that turned into kind of like you know his DJ sets are kind of performances anyway. At least the yeah. old ones were. So he was it like the it kind of like the light went up on the stage and there was kind of like this little setup. And there was, like, a tree on stage. And then all of a sudden, these arms come out of the tree. And, like, the tree just, like, starts playing, like, music on, like, this, like, accordion slash machine. And then the dancing bears came out. And it was just, like, what is going on? That was my first time seeing Apex Twin 2. That whole era where I was just, like, these folks are unbeatable. Like, this music is just killing it. Yeah, that, that album meant a lot. Um, to me Mm because to actually see her singing those songs and Mm -hmm. yeah that that was a lot of show and then I yeah I've gotten to see her quite a few times over the years and she's just a dynamic performer live like even if like some of I have to say that you know I feel like I've not bonded as strongly with some of her latest recordings but still even seeing her perform there's just something about her live. you just have to experience that she does like you mentioned very emotional she just brings something to it
0: absolutely yeah Yeah, i mean she's like a true artist she's so creative she's so her own vision (laughs) that like i even down you know like people always comment on her fashion sense and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and it's just like she just has her own perspective and you just like have you can't help but respect it and like yeah. it doesn't really matter what she's singing <laughs> you don't even have to know what the Icelandic stuff means, parts mean or anything It just she evokes like so much emotion and it's beautiful
1: I do feel like that period she was probably one of the most creative spirits working like in creative I think she was like one of the greatest working artists back of that time like if you think about the run of tracks that she had for so long and then She like again, and I think that post interestingly was the beginning of like her whole fashion deal Mm -hmm. where she started like getting creative with the clothing. I mean, everybody made a big deal that she had the jacket made of the the envelopes and then the videos like she was working with everybody like everybody Mm -hmm. was scrambling to do a Bjork video back in the day. I just feel like she came into her power with Post, that she was just kind of like, you know, debut really was a debut where it's just like, I'm introducing myself away from the Sugar Cubes. I'm about to be, these songs are amazing. I'm about to be a force, but Post was it.
3: Yeah, Yeah, Post is great. You know, at this time, it only hit me recently that uh, she had written the track Bedtime Story for Madonna's Bedtime Stories album, and that came out in, like, what was it, like sometime in 94, so just before this came out, um, this release, and um, yeah, even like kind of the mainstream acts were already kind of ducking their head in and trying to see what she was about after debut had been released, you know. Yeah. Um, I have a very random Bjork story that I've never told that I think is kind of funny um, that doesn't directly tie into post, but I think it's funny. So this, I actually have the day that this happened. It was May thirteenth, two 2011, Um I was going to the Cobble Hill movie theater with a friend of mine uh, because we just wanted to see something stupid. We wanted to see Bridesmaids opening night that it like came out in the theater. (laughs) Um, And we're on this long line and Bjork is in front of us online. I'm like, why? Bjork wants to see Bridesmaids? What What the hell? And like, I couldn't, I was kind of freaking out but obviously I wasn't gonna approach her or try and talk to her or anything. Uh, And I remember my friend was like, what, what, what's going on? Why are you like all nervous? And I'm like, Dorcas in front of us. And she's like, where? I'm like the one with blue hair who's right in front of us. I'm like whispering in her ear, but kind of screaming. And I was like, if she's going to see Bridesmaids, cause there are only two movies playing. I'm like, we have to like sit next to her. This is, I mean, this is insane. <laughs> she, she did not go see Bridesmaids. She saw like the intellectual film next door. Yeah. But.
0: I was about to ask, what does Bjork laughing sound
3: like? I know. I was so excited. And then um, this didn't happen to me, but a friend of mine in high school took a plane and was randomly sitting next to her. Um, And he was, this is right around the time of uh, post, probably, when I was in high school. Mm. And um, he was convinced it was her, but at the same time, he was like, why, it's so random. Why would I be sitting next to Bjork on this flight from New York to California? And I guess about halfway through, he he had to ask her, and he's like, excuse me, you're Bjork, right? And she goes, sometimes. <laughs> That's and that amazing. Was, that, was that, that was the whole conversation.
0: <laughs> that is amazing. You take
1: that for what it is. You're just like, okay.
3: <laughs> exactly.
1: But anyway, going back
3: to repeat skip, I would probably repeat um, Isabel or Hyper Ballad or even Enjoy, which I think they're all very different from one another. And if yeah. I were to skip one, and I were forced to, I would probably skip. You've been flirting again.
0: Yeah, I would skip that one too. She was dating Tricky on when on this album, and he was like a big collaborator on it and produced some stuff. Yeah, that you've been flirting again. I think it's like interesting that she's like talking about you know how she how her flirting is, and then like I can't like you know like trying to picture Bjork laugh. I can't like picture. Uh, she flirts <laughs> you know like what, what does that look like I don't know <laughs> and then, and then yeah. I started to think like how is she flirting with tricky like how does she flirt with tricky <laughs> and that's like a whole other level of things yeah. but um, yeah I don't know headphones too like I thought it was like kind of almost like it felt like when you're at a museum and like you know, there's headphones there and you put them on and like those are the sounds you hear. That's what it mm. felt like to me. Yeah. What about you, Sayida? What were your like favorites and skips?
1: Um, I think my repeats would be, um, number one, my favorite song off of that album is Possibly Maybe. I think mm. it's literally one yeah. of the most beautiful songs ever Like that she's written. I love the modern things. I love hyper ballad. And I think that Just as a cinema scope, I think that, like, Isabelle is unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. She really just, I'm telling you, that album just has so many good songs on it. Like, she could have probably, if they had existed, like, back in the day, she could have pulled a Beyonce and made a visual album off of that. Like, she Uh could have made uh something off of everything on that. Sadly, I'm probably going to get crucified for this, but (laughs) my skit would be the first one is oh so it's oh so quiet that song wore me out like i just like i think i burned out on it pretty quickly
4: yeah and
1: then um yeah i was like maybe i just listened to bjork screaming in headphones or something way too much <laughs> i was like lady you gotta stop. <laughs> and then i think i agree with you on the other that like, headphones and you've been flirting again but um yeah. it's tough that album is just yeah that's a tough one. Ugh.
3: I had a bit of an easier time with our next one, to pick a skip, to be honest with you. <laughs> mm. um, so just, I listen to Bjork quite regularly, but I haven't revisited this Nine Inch Nails album in quite some time. Um, the Downward Spiral from 1994, which was, I would say it was their breakthrough, but they kind of broke through before that as well. But mm-hmm. I guess it was their breakthrough in terms of like mainstream success and, and actually charting high up on the on Billboard and whatnot. Jen, what are your memories here? Mm-hmm.
0: You know, Nine Nails, yeah, like, I think that they were, like, part of, like, that period in time where I was, like, into the more kind of aggressive, like, even industrial music. Um, (laughs) And because, like, you know, like, back then I used to, like, draw all the time and I would, like you know listen to music while i was drawing and so a lot of times like i'll like tape something on like mtv or something and then <laughs> like pause it <laughs> and then like sketch it and so i remember like drawing al jorgensen but like oh. for ministry um yeah. but i i i was into nine inch nails but like it was you know this album was like really tough to like revisit I don't know that it really holds up too much in time, (laughs) like, and maybe it's just, like, me growing into, like, a a different kind of, like, what I want to listen to or something, but I just, it was, like, too much for me, and, like, I mean, it was, like, the words, like, I don't know, I just, like, couldn't gel with a lot of the tracks. It took me forever (laughs) to, like, get through it i don't know if it was rough for you guys too but like it was rough for me
1: i am on the other end of the spectrum i was a huge nightage nails (laughs) fan, like to the point where it was somewhat ridiculous like i grew up listening to i mean i think as i got older a lot more industrial a lot more goth um that was a good, sweet spot for me with a lot of bands. And then Pretty Hate Machine came out, and for me, I was like, what? It literally exploded worlds for me. Also, surprisingly, again, Kansas City. Trent played in Kansas City a lot and a lot of goth clubs there. It's weird because oh. he's a Midwestern too, but Kansas City, he would play a lot. Um, So he was there quite a bit like before Pretty Hate Machine came out. And then when it came out, it was like, this is like it was a weird feeling. It was like he's our guy. Like people loved him. Um, I saw him when I was probably seventeen. Um, I got a fake ID to go wow. see them at this goth club, like downtown. Like, so I was a huge fan. So and as I mentioned, I had a pretty, oh God, to be bad. I had a pretty big crush on him. I just thought he was. I was just like, I love him. Like that's totally like. The creepy goth guy that I that I <laughs> love. So the second album for me was unbelievable. That I was just like, whoa! And then again, it it was weird that they, you could tell when closer dropped and March the Pigs and like mm-hmm. that they just the videos just became so huge on MTV that I was like, whoa! He's gonna become famous. Like it's mm-hmm. not gonna just be like he was on, Al- Alternative Nation or 120 Minutes. Like this is like prime time play. So yeah. for me, this it's I haven't heard this album in a while. Like I've heard it live when he's performed, and also <laughs> I've seen every Nine Inch Nail t- tour. Like I may have not seen it, it, them in the same city, but every tour he's done, I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. It's just I thought about it on this last time he was here last year. I was like, wow, I've been to every tour since the first album. It's wild to hear this album again. Yeah, it's it's a pretty nuts album when you think about it very aggro very very sexual and like I I mean I think we all wanted to talk a little bit about like some of those bits (laughs) and pieces and um like I put in my notes I was like this is like pre-Incel before we knew what Incel was like this is a kind of (laughs) (laughs) a a creepy album that you're just like this dude is really um he is angry and he's angry at women and (laughs) angry at his life and there's a lot of stuff he needs to work out and one thing <laughs> things he needs to work out unfortunately and it is a downward spiral yeah. um, and also i would just love just i've waited 20 plus years to ask this question who is this woman that is torturing <laughs> that he's writing right? these about because she deserves to have her say in all of this because with Pretty Hate Machine, she kind of, like, drove him down the bottom. And then the jump into this one was really rough. Um, like, he went from SM to the whole deal. But, um, yeah, this was a lot of it. I think this was a big breakthrough album for him. And, again, I think this is very comparable that Trent was at the top of his game. and like, um, Like, he really was just, like, the man. And everybody listened to these tracks. And the videos were an event um it, it it's kind of it's wild um listen, uh, listening to it again like today it was i the report parts i was like whoa i didn't notice this back in mm-hmm. the day or it sounds different like being in my 40s and whatnot but it's an intense album
3: yeah it's a lot i mean it goes from zero to a 100 in, in a half a second i feel mm-hmm. like right away you know i i do really love that it it kind of tells the story of like a madman, a sex crazed madman going who has all sorts of issues and literally having this spiral and for me, actually, like as y- as you reach the end of the album, and I know it was a big single and uh, but I can't not pick hurt as my repeat, I just feel like that is the perfect kind of everything was released in that moment, and that song is so stunning um and it doesn't sound like anything else on the album, so maybe it's I'm chickening out a little bit, but um. I don't know. I, I, I think that song is kind of timeless and, and and brilliant. And to this day, it still kind of tears me up, honestly. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I guess there's a point in the... I think for me, the album is perhaps a couple songs too long. Uh, or maybe just listening today, it was a little too long for me. Um, but I think when when the album reaches Big Man and, with a Gun, which is actually a shorter song on the release, I was just like, m- my head's going to explode. <laughs> I don't know. Um <laughs> So yeah. that would probably be my skip. You know, I wish I have, had seen them live. I have never seen Nine Inch Nails live, which is, which is insane. Yeah. And uh, I wish that weren't the case. Uh, and also going back to something you said, Saida, like, I never, ever thought of him as sexy. But now, like, the older I get and the older he gets, I don't know. I'm just like, I don't know. His, like, all, like, his short hair now, and he's, like, mega buff. And he's, like, when you see him at, like, the Oscars or something, I'm like, damn, you know, and his fucked yeah. up nose, it's hot now.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's so weird. Like, the, the first time he, like, popped up when he was, like, mega buff, I was like, what happened? I was like, you used to be, like, that skinny, leggy guy with, like, the long hair and the fishnet, like, the fishnets and the, the docks. And, like, now you're in, like, Rick Owens and you're, like, you're like buffed out. And, 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 I mean, growth, I guess. Growth. <laughs> I guess. <laughs>
3: How do, I wanted to ask, how do the live shows compare now versus when you would first see Nine Inch Nails shows?
1: They're still pretty intense. I will say the very first ones, like when he was like coming out, it was like the the infamous Woodstock, like that they just thrashed across the stage and like scents would get thrown and like band members would yank each other around by the hair and like guitars would be smacking people. It's intense. Like those mm-hmm. early shows now there's still a really intense imagery, but I still do believe that visually, sound wise, light wise, for sure, one of the best visual like experiences you can have in like, mm-hmm. a, I mean, he plays stadiums now like in a stadium, mm-hmm. like or at he's Radio City or wherever, like the larger venues he's on that level of like a radio head and like just literally the visuals are just so beautiful. His lighting team and Somebody told me that he shares lights with Radiohead, like that they um, share tour lights. Beautiful lighting, unbelievable imagery. The setup is good. He's in it, like they. De- you can tell they're in it to win it. I actually have a, a, a Trent story that um, a friend of mine was very nice to um, for one of the tours to get us tickets, and we had backstage passes, and um, she was friends with him, and so she's like, "Oh, let's just go say hi really quick." And okay, so again. 13 year old or no older than me like 18 19 year old me was like keep it the fuck together (laughs) like do not freak out like this is her friend like be real cool here and so like i literally just like stood and clasped my arms my side and like so we got back to she was lovely really nice he literally like had just gotten off stage and he like brought like had somebody bring us back and we're in there while he's getting a b12 shot like after the show he puts everything into it he was just exhausted Mm -hmm. covered Mm -hmm. in sweat getting a p12 shot like I can't believe that he does that for an entire tour like um and you know when I was doing the research um around this album he was on tour for this album for two years can you imagine with those early shows and I did I saw the I think I saw the downward spiral show three times of that tour and it was just unbelievable like I mean Marilyn Manson opened and then like the Jim Rose Circus opened on one, and it's just—I mean, he—he he brought a show that was just unlike anybody else's back then. It was a full freaky, creepy, dark sort of show.
0: I mean, with how intense it is, and like how much energy you'd have to exert to kind of put on that performance, like I'm not surprised you would need like a P12 shot. Yeah i have like um the same kind of repeat i mean i i think it's a no-brainer that hurt is my repeat i think i fell even more in love with it after hearing the johnny cash version that came out mm. and i found this funny quote that trent said um after he heard the johnny cash cover for the first time he said i pop in the video and, and wow tears welling silence goosebumps and then he said i felt like i just lost my girlfriend because that song isn't mine anymore like wow. literally like now it belongs to johnny cash and a lot of people are mistaking it as like an original of Keep for cash which i think wow. is kind of interesting you know that would be my repeat even though it's basic yeah
1: i think my repeats i kind of ended up it did a like a repeat a skip in kind of a a weird middle ground Mm -hmm. you know my repeats are probably everybody's like you know Closer just sounded like nothing I had heard before and obviously the lyrical content is something to like it's just next level like nothing like that it really dropped there I remember it being such a big deal um Hurt I love um and March of the Pigs was such a midwestern like goth club and thrash anthem like you that was like an, a call to the dance floor like when that came on people just went nuts <laughs> skip would probably be the same things like big man with the gun um i do not want this but there is a weird you know i feel like this album was the first time we got to hear some of those instrumental soundscapes that trent really like mm-hmm. now loves to do on his like albums like even though they may have like lyrics that come in every once in a while they're kind of whatever but reptile and eraser and a warm place are just beautiful sounding songs Mm -hmm. like they just have this like kind of lovely instrumental like there's a one of them i can't remember sounds very close to some of the work he did for the facebook movie but i i don't know it's interesting but yeah it seems like for me the hits ended up being the repeats don't want to be cliche but it happened
3: it happens to us frequently so it is what yeah. it is sometimes, you know? It is.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, the same for me, Big Man with a Gun. I would skip that. You know what, though? I totally agree with you that a lot of those instrumentals were so pretty, but then I felt like they would just be ruined by, like, what he was trying to sing. <laughs> yeah,
4: you're like, Ooh. <laughs> And
0: especially, like, those moments where it really feels like there's some kind of breathing space and it's not so aggressive and loud like the surprising delicateness of some of the tracks like was like actually pretty interesting for me like just listening back on it like there was so much sexuality in that and I was like such a repressed like teenager and like young adult that like I feel like this was like songs that were sexual in nature just in general, I feel like we're kind of like porn to me because <laughs> it's <was> like <laughs> it's like oh, they're singing about sex, sing, <laughs> and, like, and you know, like sexy music, whatever. But like, yeah, I mean, it was pretty dark. And for closer, like, even though I feel like the music is like really good, and closer, I just like couldn't get over the lyrics and also just like remembering the crazy video that came along with that mm. with like the pig spinning and I don't know, it's like super disturbing the apple and, and his everything. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> Pretty wild. Yeah. Wait, it was
3: a ball gag. Ball gag or apple? I don't remember.
0: Well it could be both. I could have been both apple, apple <laughs> as a ball gag. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh yeah, I, I actually appreciate this sexiness of like i actually think his voice is sexier when it's like quiet quiet Mm -hmm. those quiet moments than when he's like screaming um he just has like this really nice tone that i think like if there was like a whole song where it was like just that i'd be fine with it
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think in those first couple albums he was very comfortable talking about sex like Mm -hmm. and just kind of like the weird nature it came along and it balances these relationships he's talking about and whatnot listening to closer again i'm just like wow he made a like and maybe i was just because i again same midwestern young like not super like knowing what's going on like he really was talking about a very intense like like M e kind of Mm -hmm. like very, it's an intense relationship he's talking about there, and like that exchange of power, and it sounds like a very different song for when I'm like a teenager and you're just hearing like provocative words. Mm. To actually listening to what it is now, you're like, wow, that's a, that's a dynamic that's going on. You are making a a <laughs> choice in this relationship of what this sex is looking like. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, he didn't seem very afraid of that. It's like you know, um playing with a lot of like gender roles i mean also i think that Mm. you know once you find out that he was and still is a very big bowie fan that i think he took like his kind of industrial goth version of it that they kind of dressed in like things that were traditionally Mm. for women um fishnets and long kind of hair and like shaded eyes and Mm -hmm. like very kind of like hugging and if you ever saw like if you watch videos like they were very affectionate on scales like a male affection but for somebody in the midwest or these guys that like that was their first nine inch sales songs they're like pumping or going to the venue to see like him and robin from the band like hugging and like embracing and whatever like draped over each other it probably is very weird for like some people like whoa it was the first time they'd seen it um it's a, it's mm. a hell of a it's a hell of an album hell of a hell of a single um in the things he's putting out there pretty challenging even today for some folks mm.
0: yeah. i didn't actually realize that there was a sample of um night clubbing in it from iggy pop and uh it's just like when i was like researching the album i came across that and i was like and i had to... i also did the same. i like went back and listened to both and i was just like
3: wow oh. <laughs> i never realized that me either
0: Yeah, and that was, like, wild, and then, like, also, just, like, it's so funny, because, like, the lyrics of that song are just so, like, can feel so explicit, and then he seems kind of, like, oblivious to that somehow, (laughs) because I feel like, you know, he's like, why does everyone think this is, like, like a frat party anthem, or like a stripper kind of anthem or something like i guess that it gets played a lot in those kind of scenarios and i'm like you're talking about fucking (laughs) like it's just (laughs) like come on dude
1: (laughs) yeah you straight up saying it like (laughs) back then i'm sure strippers didn't really have the songs that were straight up like wow yeah (laughs) my money like a full moneymaker song like i'm sure they were very appreciative
3: they didn't
0: have (laughs) get your freak on back then yeah (laughs)
1: or
3: WAP, Cardi B.
2: Or WAP. <laughs> I mean,
3: yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs>
3: no, but I mean, yes. in terms of just how how quote unquote vulgar or straightforward this song was, it was kind of groundbreaking. You didn't, you never heard something on the radio that was that straightforward with a line in the chorus, you know, um, and also said in such a way that was. He was not like we were all saying. He wasn't shy. It was very much like it was direct, and I yeah. think that's what kind of was so um, uh, unnerving in a way.
1: Yeah, you I know. know. I remember driving around like with my mom. I had like a mixtape on, or had the album. I would like turn it down or skip that song <laughs> immediately because I was like, I don't even want to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, yeah. I mean, the, I remember that they. I mean, it's it's so amazing to think about what MTV and other channels and what they did. Remember that they could only play it a certain time of night, that video. Mm -hmm. I think they premiered it like one day during the day, all hell broke loose. And then it became an evening. And there was like, I think like a moment of warning to get parents to turn it or whatever. (laughs) Then they would play it. And I was like, that's so crazy that we all had to wait. Like, Oh, I want to see that video. And you'd have to wait till nighttime to like, see the the closer video.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Oh, I remember that scene where he's like rotating and he's kind of levitating mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that that music video is pretty iconic.
1: Yeah. yeah, and that's what I was just googling now to see. I want to say it was was that a was that a Floria Sigismundi, who I think is
3: I it must be.
1: She did no. all those, no? Ro- Mark Romantic. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I know he worked with her quite a bit. Shout out to her. She's amazing. But oh that yeah, Mark yeah. Romantic did that. Oh. Oh, and remember that it had those where it would the, the, obviously there are things that had to be removed. They would have that card that flashed scene missing. Oh, mm. yes. I'm yes. like, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, if you couldn't show it and it's on now. I'm Like, what was it?
0: <laughs> so wild. Yeah. It definitely left an impression on me.
3: <laughs> yeah, all of us. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This is fantastic. I love um, getting a chance to revisit things, especially to um, albums and artists that really kind of meant a lot to me and mm-hmm. shaped a lot of what I listen to. So thank you guys so much. I'm, I'm stoked you guys are appreciating and giving music uh, its due like this. It's fun to look back.
3: Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mixtape Memories, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.